Good morning all. Uh, well, if you've got a Bible to hand, now's the time to get it open at Nehemiah chapter 8. And we're going to be reading the whole chapter together. Nehemiah chapter 8, it's page 492 in the Bibles you were given at the back. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Mattitiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hadiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and myrtles, palms and shade trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths 
on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. One of the benefits of uh, being in charge is to ask people to read difficult parts of the Bible. <laughs> well, as he skipped over those names, quick, did you notice that? I thought that was very good indeed. Um, it's a reminder that my task is to uh, interpret and uh, sometimes uh, reaffirm uh, familiar things. Uh, this is my 26th uh, Parsons Pocketbooks, my ecclesiastical diary. And this day, uh, the Sunday before Lent, is called Quincogesima. It reminds me of a true account of a, an English um, Keswick Anglican preacher preaching in India. And he began like this famous quote, The beatific familiarity of this text, commonly associated with Quincogesima, must not cause us to neglect its profundity. And the Indian translator, he was speaking in India, said, looking serious and spiritual, said, so far the speaker said nothing worth interpreting when he does. I will let you know. That's the problem with lost in communication and translation. Well, there you are. That's, so this is not an easy passage, uh, but I'm sure there are things here for us. Watergate is synonymous with scandal. Perhaps the greatest scandal in American history, Watergate. And uh, people have used that as, as an example of other scandals, particularly in political circles. What we have now in chapter 8 is a fascinating insight into this spiritual restoration of God's people. What we've seen so far in the first six chapters is a preoccupation with this building uh, project, a vast, challenging, demanding project, which took years in its preparation. The unseen is always the most important. Years of preparing, we've been with Nehemiah, uh, with King Artaxerxes, presenting his cause, praying, waiting, waiting, then speaking, and having all the documentation and the resources ready to build. However, the building project itself didn't take very long. However complicated the process, buildings usually go up relatively quickly. And this was done in a matter of a couple of months. But that's not a small task. But in contrast to building people instead of building buildings, now that's the challenge. They used to say it took just one day for the children of Israel to pass through the Red Sea, for the children of Israel to come out of Egypt. The, four, the, the, the 40 years of desert 
wanderings, which was the whole point of the booths in, in chapter 8 here, it took 40 years or more to get Egypt out of the children of Israel. It's, it's immorality, it's idolatry, uh, and all of that culture and its ingrained uh, sinfulness so that this people becomes a covenant people. Well, there you are. This is where we're at. We've, we've looked at the restoration of the walls. The walls symbolize security and strength and independence. Now we're looking at the people who are going to inhabit that city. So the stones or the bricks and mortar now are, in the language of Peter, living stones built into a spiritual house, offering spiritual sacrifices. It's extraordinary that that verse should come from 1 Peter chapter 2, written during a time when the emperor Nero was uh, like a, a psychopath, ready to inflict pain and persecution on Christians during that time in Rome. And yet, there, God is building a people of, of significant purpose and conviction and power. And that's what we have here. So, it's interesting uh, to notice in chapters 7 to 12, which is going to be the, the ground that we're going to cover in the next few weeks, that Nehemiah virtually drops out of the story. Uh, apart from three references, and each of them are in the third person, Nehemiah doesn't feature at all. There is something, if for nothing else, we need to realize that God has a purpose for us at various times and various occasions, and often we are reluctant to stand down. Often we are reluctant to say, well, that's what God's called me to do. And now Ezra comes center stage, and he is now going to teach and interpret and explain how they become a covenant people, and God's word becomes central. An interesting feature as well in these uh, chapters is this. And uh, if you were to take time to read these chapters, you'll find that they are an enormous challenge because you have to uh, um, pronounce these unpronounceable names. It's quite a challenge to do it publicly, much less privately. But what is the point of them? Let's try to illustrate this. A list of names. It's if you were to... well do this exercise, this, this bulge of names over 250 people. And it represents uh, the, uh, the widest spectrum of abilities from, from priests to artisans to builders to uh, leaders of song. Um, the, the whole spectrum of people are involved in this massive project now, not only of building but of identifying with God's people. Now, a list of names can be incredibly boring. I was tempted this morning to illustrate this by bringing the most recent telephone directory. And I wonder how you would felt if I put it here and started to read page after page of names. How boring is that? Not only boring, but how irrelevant is it? Unless, of course, you're looking for someone's name. Just two years ago, I heard of a family who spent a year planning to visit um, France after the Battle of the Somme, where their great-grandfather was named on a list of thousands upon thousands of names. Just one name. How deeply moving was that? So names can be boring. They can be irrelevant. They can be powerful and moving and personal. 
what if you read in the Times supplement the Queen's Honours list and you were told your name's going to be there. The way you'd look at that list would be very different. You'd probably keep the, the, the newspaper for posterity even though there are thousands of names. So, it depends where you're coming from. These lists are incredibly moving, inspiring, challenging. So in chapter 8, what we see then is this move from uh, building construction now to a people instruction. Teaching the people of God. Um, what I'd like us to do is to look at uh, chapter 8 very quickly under uh, five headings. And we won't spend too much time, just to give you, if you like, a bigger picture, first of all, of chapter 8. This whole thing takes time. You see that in verse 3. Uh, Ezra, he read aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and those who could understand, which really implied it was an all-age event. Now, in a society where we see things as sub-subcultures of generations, there is something here about coming together at certain times, all who can understand. But there's a great difference, isn't there, between learning biblical facts and gaining insight. Mere knowledge in and of itself can make us very proud. Embracing truth can lead to wisdom and help us to live out our lives. It takes time. It takes people. You see that in verse 1. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. The greatest resource the church has is people. We are People. The church is people. We've been talking a lot about buildings and challenge and finance and commitment. Yes, but it's people. People. We can have the most resplendent building but have no church. And the point is this. Without involvement, there is no commitment. And without commitment, there is no involvement. It's people. 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 That's the big challenge that comes out of this. Thirdly, it takes a right attitude. These people that, whose names that, uh, that you have there were not a, an inexperienced group. They were not novices. These were heads of households, parents, grandfathers, priests, Levites, singers, artisans. It takes a right attitude and there they were saying at various stages in their lives, I still have things that I have to learn. And it takes the right source. One of the things that's central here is, and that's the heading of chapter 8, it's reading the law of God, the word of God, and how vital that is to us. And finally, it takes the right response. You see in verse 9, for example, then... Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Sometimes church can be heavy. Why does he say this? Well, in verse 9, 
For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said to them, Go, enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve. And this famous sentence, isn't it? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Conversely, the absence of it is our weakness. So here you have this sense of solemnity and celebration. And it's very hard to get those right, isn't it? But those are the lessons from uh, chapter 8, those, those five things. The pursuit of insight, of understanding, not simply knowledge in and of itself. But a key verse for us is uh, Nehemiah 8, verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. That is the imperative of every church service. Do we leave with a sense of understanding? I would not want to belong to a church where I go. It only confirms my prejudices, doctrinal or otherwise. We, 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 th this verse says to us, wherever we are, whatever our backgrounds, God has something to say to us. And the test surely is understanding, making it clear. We leave with a sense of understanding. And what's the test of that? I hope it's not a disappointment to you. The test of understanding is obeying. I understand it. And I know now that's got to filter through into my life and into my relationships. This practical response of obedience produced these three positive attitudes. And I leave them with you very quickly. Number one, what they heard touched their emotions. What they heard touched their emotions. And you have that in verses 8 and 9. Yes, there was a sense of deep-seated emotion here. Now, some, some of you folk here are afraid of emotion. You, you keep it in check all the time. What they heard touched them deeply. It didn't just do something to them, but it did something in them. And they were different. Not because they went around trying to be. This is a sort of an emotional release, if you like. A, a catharsis. Pent up emotions. Spiritual floodgates at the water gate, if you like. Opened out. You know, this is not an everyday experience. That's perhaps one of the problems with some churches is that this should happen every Sunday all the time. It doesn't work like that. You can't sustain that. But it should work from time to time. What they heard touched their emotions. The Christian faith is about heart and mind, emotion and intellect. What they heard touched their emotions. Secondly, and this gets bad press really, um, their repentance eventually turned to joy. Now, for some, for some Christian people, well-intended, tend to think that repentance, well, that's a negative thing. And uh, greatly misunderstood. I think the Lord Jesus wanted to make that clear when he gave the parable of the prodigal son. Because the and it's so, not so obvious, like lots of parables. 
Yes, it's patently obvious that the younger son with his lifestyle and his extravagance and his unhelpful, apparently immoral lifestyle at the cost of his father's hard work, no less. Well, he needs to repent. But the son at home, he's good. He doesn't put a foot wrong. He's always there. And yet, and if you see that marvelous painting by Rembrandt, you see him in that twilight zone, detached, cold, unrepentant, and very critical. Their repentance turned to joy. That's what you see in these verses. Uh, so I wanted to illustrate this in reading again, and uh, I asked Charles, I bought this book here a few years ago, and it's by Jonathan Aitken, Prayers for People Under Pressure. Excellent book. I dip into it quite a lot, more than most books, and uh, it's, it's, it's really a superb book. But in his introduction, he says how uh, he came to faith, and uh, the, uh, the first uh, week of spending uh, his six months in in prison, in Belmarsh High Security, he received a letter from Colson, the Watergate scandal. Colson's prison experience caused him to come to faith. And so he identified with Jonathan Aitken. And he says this. Colson immediately wrote to me a letter urging me to take the Christian path of repentance. Filled with remorse for my wrongdoing, I was receptive to his suggestion. However, I had no real understanding of the concept of repentance. I did not know the deeper meaning of the word metanoia, which translates as, quote, a change of heart and mind. I thought repentance consisted of saying sorry, preferably as quiet and as privately as possible, and then getting back on to life as usual. And he proceeds to say that it's not like that. It's not like that. Repentance eventually will turn to joy. Thirdly, and this is perhaps at least superficially difficult to explain and not terribly relevant. They celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Now you might say, what has that got to do with me? The nearest we get to it is when we go on holiday and some people like camping. What you have here in these verses 14 to 18 is that as they begin to read Scripture... So they begin to discover God's promises when we fulfill his commands. Now, can you imagine for a moment this marginalized, pilloried company of people criticized uphill and downdale already, now having to endure the indignity of living seven days in these uh, booths, these shelters, can you imagine the, the cynicism? Think of the, their opponents and how they would say, 
particularly the Sanballats of their day. What nonsense. But what's it for? Well, here they are, preoccupied with a building project, financial commitment, personal um, commitment, involvement of all generations, stretched. And now, to be challenged about the fact that God doesn't live in buildings at all. We are a pilgrim people. And one of the things that they had forgotten during their time in exile is this. And don't forget, uh, Babylon was one of the great seventh wonders of the world. Is this, that we are a pilgrim people. For all of the challenge of buildings, good as they are, they are but servants. And I think there are people today who are almost guilty of worshipping buildings, not worshipping in them. But God knows people's hearts. What is it about? We should never forget that we are a pilgrim people. And some of you here, you know that your children or members of your family have gone on prematurely before you. We are a pilgrim people. This is not our home. And in an age which constantly hems in upon us on the need for financial security and all of that, don't forget. Of course, it reflects a period in the life of God's people where they were just going round in circles. Can you imagine for 40 years simply chasing their tails? Well, what's its application for today if it isn't obvious It's not simply reclaiming an old tradition, a dead tradition, if you like. It's reclaiming a new generation with this timely principle. We are a pilgrim people. Just turn to this one final reference here in Deuteronomy. uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We were challenged with this chapter last Sunday evening when I interviewed Keith Sival, who occasionally goes to the synagogue with his mother, that every day Jews will read parts of Deuteronomy chapter 6. But in verse 20, you think of the children and would ask their parents, for goodness sake, why are you doing this? Why are we living in booths? We've got a lovely house, we've got air conditioning, we've got all that we need and we're living here like this. Why are we doing this? Please tell me. And they will say, I'm glad you asked that question. And here it is, Deuteronomy 6, verse 20. In the future, when your sons, your offspring, ask you what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord your God has commanded you. Now then, just pause there for a moment. Implicit here is that we live in a certain way that our children ask us certain questions. It's like it's home evangelism. Tell him, tell them, we were slaves. It's very important, isn't it, that we remember our roots. We were slaves. That's all we were. Slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
Before our eyes the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and to give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees, to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey, not simply to believe, all this law before the Lord our God, it will be command, it, it, he has commanded us, this will be our salvation, our righteousness. Now, do you see the point? Yes, it may seem rather an obscure tradition. But when we understand what it means for us, we go back to our roots. We were slaves. We were not born Christians. We were born into a Christian culture. We were privileged to have prayers in public places. And they have to defend that even more. But we were not born Christians. We have to come to a faith. Maybe God so honoured the prayers of our parents as they, in dedication or baptism, brought us to God. But we still have to, as we were thinking with, uh, interviewing with Kat, there comes a time when you have to say, this is my this is my choice. This is my calling. I'm going to follow him. That's a reminder of God's providence in the past. Especially for younger generations. God's love. God's faithfulness. And God's mercy. So to sum up, as we come around the Lord's table, chapter 8 brings these things together. Objective truth, there it is. But the objective truth is dovetailed to practical obedience. How much is God blessing us? You should answer, as much as I obey him. Objective truth and practical obedience. Secondly, our collective worship Solemn and celebratory. Maybe we're not so good on the latter, I agree. And finally, personal repentance and great rejoicing. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And you take that with you. It's what you are. It's what we're becoming by the grace of God.